Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess purity, political, and pop culture. I am joined here today with my friend, Victoria Hill, who is no stranger to the podcast. She has been here before. She was actually here talking about the Georgia election uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now. Time is flying by. Um, Today was supposed to be the second part of the Black in America series that we were doing with our incredible host, our February host, Embo. Uh, Embo is unfortunately in the middle of everything going on in Texas right now, which um, is obviously a lot for those of you that are not super privy to what is going on. They're without power. Um, they are on a boil water order, so they are having to boil their water to you know, be able to flush their toilets and get something safe to drink. It's a lot going on. Uh, luckily, Embo has relayed to me that she has had you know, stints of power and she's staying warm and she's in good community with her friends. But she definitely wasn't going to be able to host an entire podcast episode, understandably so, today. Um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, what is what is the episode going to look like this week? I would be lying if I didn't share that it has also been a very intense week in my own personal life. And so I've been thinking some thoughts and I reached out to... Victoria, today's guest, because I was so, so excited. She was actually going to be a part of today's panel. And um, I was kind of bummed at the idea of the panel being totally dissolved and not getting a chance to reconnect with her. So I asked her if she would be comfortable just popping on and talking. We um, have no shortage of things, Victoria and I, that we can talk all day long about. She um, and I are very much on the same wavelength when it comes to all the things that we have interests in. And a lot of those interests overlap perfectly with uh, what we talk about here on Nobody's Damsel. So I thought it was the perfect week to do a little bit of an impromptu uh, episode that I think is going to turn out to be a real treat. Um, And so we're just going to dive right in and get into it. Uh, Victoria and I are going to hang out. We're going to catch up. We actually haven't had the opportunity to talk on the phone in a few weeks. So let's see what trouble we can get into. Hi, Victoria. How are you? (laughs) Hi. I'm good. I'm ready for some good trouble quote yes ad nauseum like everybody else <laughs> I know right well what's <laughs> going on like I feel like all of our lives are just like dumpster fires right now I don't know if yours is but mine is and everyone that I feel like I'm connected to is what's so funny? yeah well what's so funny for me is I had like a dumpster fire of a year before 2020 so just like I was met with a lot of privilege where like we're all in hell right now, but I got to experience it from a pretty good spot. So I try not to complain a lot, but um, yeah, it's been interesting in the news world. Uh, my favorite story right now is Ted Cruz getting bullied into doing his job. It's very exciting for me. Um, oh my gosh. I have some things to say about that. When right? the time comes. <laughs> Fun fact, literally this week, a year ago, I was at the same resort in Cancun, like doing the exact same trip he did. And he got bullied out of it. And I'm like, ah, yeah. so just like, this is great. You were also a week before COVID or a month before COVID. I know. Um, and you aren't a politician. And <laughs> it's I mean- not a national weather movie. <laughs> Yeah. And what's so funny is in college, I majored in American studies, which basically ruins any illusions about like American exceptionalism. And it just really opens your eyes up to how everything is colonialism, everything is racist. And so when I got invited on this trip, 
I spent the whole time being like, I'm such a colonizer, but I really enjoyed it. Like it was, so it's so funny that this trip trip that I loved that my friend very generously took me on for basically for free, but I still felt guilty about. And then Ted Cruz just went in the middle of a natural disaster in his own constituency. And I'm like, wow, you are truly the worst. You're a monster. (laughs) I'm just sitting out here. Yeah. So I had half. Oh my gosh. No, I was going to say that what had happened was I posted a, um, like a fake tweet and it was, I thought it was like very obviously a joke. Well, there's two going around right now. There's the Coco one. Have you seen that one? That's like, like saying, yes, the one where it's basically like, I had, I wouldn't run. Yeah, but it's important because I had to figure out if Coco, which is like the, the kids Disney movie, which is set in that, um, it's not set in Cancun, but set in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, if it was real or something like that. Yeah, and then there's the a going- real. Yes, and there's yeah. another one going around that is basically like all um, all believe in climate change when Texas freezes over. And I posted that one on my stories, like not even thinking about it. And then I just said it's a bad week for you, Ted Cruz. And then like I woke up, so I took a really great nap today, which was a very very needed nap. Um, and I woke up and like I had like 45 messages and I was so confused because I had forgotten that I even posted one thing. And like the majority of them are just people sending like laughing faces or whatever. But then like some people were like, that is a fake tweet. You're spreading false information. And I was like, wait, guys, I thought we were all just making fun of Ted Cruz. Like I didn't know. We- <laughs> like I thought we were just all in on it because in general, the reality that Ted Cruz left his constituency during a natural disaster is the joke. Like there's no need for any bad tweets, although Ted Cruz has no shortage of real bad tweets. Um, but in general, like, I just feel like the joke is already like, he, he does, he doesn't need any help with it. Like it's, it's already funny that this is happening. And then I think that my favorite part, um, which is also sad to be fair is when he blamed his daughters for, for, and then it's like it all came out that like this had been planned for a long time and that you know and there was all these I don't know if you saw the texts that were going around that were yes, like a first from high you. Oof. oh um, my gosh yeah so poor Ted Cruz oh yeah I'm also like so fascinating that some Ted Cruz stands came out of the woodwork and was like oh my god how dare you misrepresent him I'm like he's walking around with a mullet his wife was cold for like a day and was like, we simply can't take it. We have to leave our mansion. Like, call- all right. The real okay, thing take- is not a fake tweet. He does deny climate change. He did leave his constituents. And just being like, oh, you know, elect me. I'll fight for you. Like, send me to Washington. And you can't figure out what you can do for your own state. And then also just the absolute bullshit of Texas having its own power grid. And it's just another example of like what happens when you avoid regulation and people are just not going to get it. And, you know, like they're having these crazy skyrocketing power rates now, like people's kilowatt hours are have increased by like 200, 400%. It's ridiculous. So yeah, if he has one fake attributed to some very real actions, I don't care. Bullying worked at this point. Okay. Like, (laughs) But. Right. Like I was like, oh, I thought we were all making fun of Ted. I didn't realize that we weren't all on the same page here. Um, <laughs> but so what I was what I was gonna say is that I actually take it back. My favorite part isn't the part where he blamed his daughter. My favorite part is where he flees to Mexico, um, <laughs> because that's actually the best part of the story. Just yeah. because of the whole closed borders and like 
you know, just all of that. But you're going to go and profit off of a country that you have vilified. You're going to go profit off of their tourist market in a pandemic, regardless of if it's a freaking natural disaster or not when it comes to the weather. Um, it's also a preventable natural disaster because the only reason why people are dying is because of the power grid. And the power grid, the only reason why is because they just had to have their free market Republican fucking energy sources. Yep. And it was funny because I have actually like, and this is not unlike me. I like to go and, and listen to like the other side, the other perspective. And like, it's so interesting to see how Fox news and its counterparts have like twisted this entire situation. And Oh my gosh, Hannity was, I mean, it was comedy hour because of the way that he was flipping it around and the way that he was validating the goodness of a disconnected power grid and saying that in any other circumstance, it's, you know, this perfectly wonderful thing because of the free market. And then he had Ted Cruz on for an interview on Fox News and they were talking about like, it was so funny. They were like, I thought that this was the day and age when we were all working from our computers. Like, what happened to that? Democrats love us working from our computers. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cringe. And then Hannity goes, goes, yeah, I don't know what they expect you to do. Are you going to be out there passing out food? And it's like, yes. Oh, my God. That's exactly what you should be doing. Like, (laughs) basically saying, like, Ted Cruz, you could have made this an email. Like, you could have easily been in Cancun and could have just been emailing about it. And he's like, yeah, there's not much I could do from my state, but I'm back here now because I started to feel guilty the moment I stepped on that plane. Yeah, was that before or after people started recording your ass on the plane, literally giving you the death stare? This is why, like, I fucking love Twitter. Like, Twitter has been, is, you know, a cesspool, blah, blah, blah. But, like, Twitter is also, like, live reporting. And people on Twitter go in and they do not take their foot off your neck. And people on Twitter hate Ted Cruz. And so, like, I love the absolute collective pettiness of everyone in that fucking airport who took pictures of him in the Sky Lounge and that stupid-ass haircut and the internet detectives who matched his mask and were like, don't try and play us. And it's so funny because it's just from top to bottom, just like a chef's kiss story. I remember when I was at that resort, the greatest joy of my life was talking to all the workers there because the people who stay at the Ritz-Carlton in Cancun are almost universally assholes. They are monsters. And if you just sit there and you talk to anyone who works there for more than two minutes, they will spill so much tea. And I was like, I would kill to go talk to like some of my favorite workers from there, like the day after Ted Cruz left and just be like, tell us everything. Oh, oh, you want some Ted Cruz tea? Do you want some Ted Cruz? Yes. So my, my best friend, Sophie, my roommate, her parents both went to Princeton. And so they are around Ted Cruz's age. So they knew people who knew him. And they, they tell me all the time he was quote universally despised and was just like creepy and gross and weird and would like jerk off in his room with his roommate <laughs> sleeping in the top bunk. Like he's just gross from top to bottom. Never mind that he doesn't care about human beings. Never mind that he is just like touting hatred. Never mind that he's the worst. He's also just gross and no one likes him. And so I just talked about him. I love bullying Ted Cruz and it'll never be, it'll, I'll never get tired of that it. Is, yeah. I mean, it's seriously the perfect, like it is just a prototype like everything that you've just 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 said about him does not surprise me it does not anything I mean um like oh my gosh who was that 
Tavangelis. Yes, him that just died. What was his name? Oh, um, oh, are you talking about the guy from Atlanta? I don't know. It was the one that like everybody was talking about. Not the Christian musician. There was a Christian musician, Carmen, who died like two days ago. But then there was another guy. Um, there was Rush Limbaugh and he's just like a radio. Yes. Oh, he's not a televangelist. He's okay. a radio shock jock monster who okay. just is one of those like, oh, he's just disgusting from beginning to end. His entire career is awful. Like he was like the president of racism, like just David Duke style energy. I'm happy to be talking to you right now because I have effectively had my head under a rock this past week, getting everything done with the kit for the kids and all of that. And so I have so much going on in my personal life and I've been keeping like a little bit updated. Like I try to listen to like 10 minutes of news a night, but I knew you would have more insight oh, into what's going on in the world. The fact <laughs> that you get into your adult life without knowing who Rush Limbaugh is, is a value add to your life. Like he was a monster. <laughs> there was no redeeming quality about him ever. He was always bad. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I had seen something. Anywho, um, <laughs> wow was in his 12-hour Cancun stay, he, he did make time to, like, put out a tribute to Rush. Yeah. Um, and so that was just very on brand because, you know, Ted, Daddy Ted, he is a devout Christian and he wants everyone to know it. And so, although what is Christian in Ted Cruz's eyes, that is a philosophical conversation. Um. But... Anywho, yeah, that there's a lot of tea going on there. I really couldn't. I think he realizes, though, I think that there's a very real chance that his, like, in his mind, because in his mind, he's the pre- like, he's going to be the president one day because he's so egotistical and just so, so narcissistic. And it's so obvious that, like, he wants that, that he wants to be the president one day, or that he, like, he fancies himself someone that, that could be the president. Yeah, and, and he's an idiot. Like, his policy choices are bad. Like, all he does is lie. I just, from top to bottom, he's the worst. I cannot Right. Him. Yeah. And so I just find, yeah, I just find it really interesting is all I was, like, and it's just a whole, it's a whole smorgasbord. But, <laughs> anywho, not to, not to harp on Ted Cruz for more than a few minutes, <laughs> uh, Tell me a little bit about the last time you were on, we had talked about um, everything going on with the insurrection, the George, we had talked about the insurrection, right? The insurrection had just happened. Yes. And then we, yes. And then we also had talked about the Georgia election and everything else. So what is the climate like? I know you have some current intel on the way that like policies are being attempted to change and all of that in light of this really successful election. Yeah. So just like everybody around here predicted, uh, you know, state legislature, state legislature um, members immediately started introducing sweeping proposals to limit early voting. And it's crazy because there was this really intensive, well done, honestly, very well executed attempt to prove that this was the most secure election we've ever had, the most secure election Georgia's ever had. And almost immediately, state representatives, uh, state Republicans, I should say, um, introduced, I think it's House Bill 531. Hold on, I have something saved on my phone. I can go look, but while I'm talking about it. um, And it's just this sweeping voter suppression bill that is just trying to eliminate 
any way that black or brown or urban dwelling people can vote. And it's crazy because um, I'm sure this, this applies to a lot of things, but I've been thinking about it a lot, um, especially when thinking about uh, the rabbit holes I've been going down lately that we can talk about later. But (laughs) I, I just feel like what people don't understand and what I think, you know, white people need to understand specifically, white cisgender people need to understand is that forms of oppression affect you down the line. They affect us worse and they affect us first. And by us, I mean, you know, BIPOC, any sort of people who are outside of the mainstream, not straight and white. Um, They normally hit us first and often hit us really badly, but they will hit you too. So like some of the things that are happening in this voter suppression bill, yeah, House Bill 531, is they're eliminating Sunday voting, slashing available hours of early voting, getting rid of Saturday voting, getting rid of um, basically making it almost impossible to vote, um, to do absentee ballots. I think it's, yeah, and there's a ton of anti-voting stuff happening now, um, slash the time that counties can mail in ballots by half, cut it in half, um, require you to photocopy your ID. Requiring an ID is already deeply problematic and I can explain why but voter ID requirements are already problematic now you are requiring someone to have access to a photocopier like who has a printer at their home let alone a copier I don't right I don't (laughs) right um they want security people you know basically like voter intimidation it's ridiculous and it's really just an overt attempt to keep people from voting and because of the removal of um review from the federal government that came with as part of the Voter Rights Act in the 60s, they can get away with it. I really, fair fight, Stacey Abrams group is all over it. A bunch of organizers are really mobilizing really hard already to sort of push back. But this is exactly what we predicted. There is always a white lash when Black activists do something great like this. There is always whiteness showing up, you know, in their Ford F-150s telling us to calm down. And so that's what you're seeing here. So that's super annoying. Um, it's so crazy. so crazy to hear because like you use the word overt and I wanted to use that word. I was like waiting to say that. And then you said it. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking is like, you know, it's one thing to be a Republican and to have Republican values like, you know, lower taxes and, you know, an economic strategy of government having their hands off and all of that, which is inherently problematic, but significantly less so than the social issues of republicanism and conservatism. Um, And so it's kind of shocking to see them just blatantly put it out on the table. We don't want black people voting. And you can't even mince it. You can't even pretend that that's not what these policies are um, elevating. You know, there's no other rational reason why they would want all of these measures put into place that so specifically target, you know, low income and BIPOC communities and zip codes. And it's just so overt and it's painful because it's, um, this is a whole nother tangent and I don't think these two things are necessarily akin. So I don't want to get caught comparing them, but it brings up for me the same emotions of, for some reason this week, I saw, um, an openly homophobic, um, through the biblical lens thing. And it really hurt me. And I'll talk about it a little bit later, but like, and I haven't been hurt like that before. And I know that that's a stance of, you know, millions of people. And it's just like, I don't know why it got under my skin. I think it's because I got into the comments and started reading like the hundreds of people validating it. 
Um, and so again, these things are not akin, but I think it's interesting just how like in the, in the race sphere or even in just the low income sphere, because I mean, it is, yes, it's directly and disproportionately affecting BIPOC communities and BIPOC communities are low income communities, but it's also disproportionately affecting, you know, low income voters and voters who would not have means to be able to, you know, like you said, copy their ID or even transport themselves or whatever. And so really it's just like, it's so much of just the elite, you know, we want the elite to vote and only the elite to vote. And we are not going to hide, you know, hide and try to pretend that that's not what these policies are. And so it is very difficult to see so much. And I think in the wake of the era of Trump, we're start, we're, we're continuing to see, you know, an emboldened establishment. And, and, and it's funny because Trump, Mr. Drain the Spomp, you know, was also that, that emboldened the establishment or that emboldened, you, you get what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. So that's kind of where my mind goes is just like, wow, so painfully obvious that you don't want BIPOC or low-income individuals to be voting or even those zip codes to be on the radar anymore. Because I think we all remember that night um, that was so awesome because we were starting to see like which zip codes were left to be counted. And yeah. we were like, oh my God, they're poor. We're totally getting that one. <laughs> oh, they're, yeah. back. they're coming through. And like, that's and their biggest. That's my people. They're coming for us. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was so funny to watch because like, even from you and other people too, were just like, oh, don't worry about them. Like they're black. Don't worry about them. They're poor. Like, and it's like, okay, why are they coming through so hard for us right now? Like, whoo. We, um, yeah. So, and it's, it's, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I, I understand you not wanting to make absolute equivalence, but oppression is oppression, man. We are not out here making oppression Olympics. The truth of the matter is, this is just another example of people using disrespect of our humanity in order to justify their place in the pecking order, in order to protect their money and to protect the legacy of their children. And it's always comes down to money. All you're ever doing really in you know reinforcing oppressive ideals is finding a way to justify you know these unfounded inequities and so i just i fully sympathize with seeing a post that deeply hurts you like that it it's you know different in a lot of ways but it's still about causing harm in order to maintain a status quo that the world is leaving behind and i'm like in what yeah like it's I, I, what I'm saying is I sympathize and <laughs> I appreciate you being intentional. But oppression is oppression. Well, well, I appreciate that. And yeah. And so, and I just meant that in the sense that like, you know, when, it, when, when people gang up on people, yeah, that is such a bad feeling and that, and when they, when they do it so overtly and they do it in such a way, but yeah, there was a, a, a Christian influencer just like, I mean, you, you already know, you already know she's white. You already know that she's beautiful. You already know that she's petite. You already know. I mean, you already know you, cause there's so much anthropology there, right? Mm-hmm. She's got, you know, 60,000 plus followers. I think she's gained thousands of followers from this post. That was another part of like pain point for me was just how many followers she gained when she posted this. And, um, part of me reserves like a very small part of me that feels bad for her because she is expressing very publicly that she has overcome her like same sex attraction. And I'm like, Oh girl, you gay. Like, Oh, baby. 
Um, and so there's a there's a small part of me that is like, well, I feel for you because you are never going to be with a woman, and that sucks. Um, <laughs> so a much bigger part of me that is like, oh my goodness. So so basically, like, I'm paraphrasing, but her whole thing is like, you know, for his glory, not mine, and his is capitalized. You know, you know. We were talking about this a very specific prototype. But anyway, she posted about, um, and this is something that's very common in the Christian evangelical sphere, where they'll very publicly, it's like, it's almost like, um, uh, like sympathy porn for them. Well, they'll very publicly talk about their sin, whatever their sin is. And I say sin with air quotes, you know, rather that be like, they're gay, or they have a stealing problem, or they have a porn problem, or um, they have an infidelity issue, whatever it may be, they very, very publicly talk about it. And this isn't all evangelical Christians, it's a special, special brand. Um, and they basically just like, they make the whole thing about redemption and I kind of get it except for most of the things that they are quote unquote sinning about, you know, it's, well, first of all, like most of them are just not sins. Like it's not a day <laughs> or it's not, a, you know, or it's not a sin to watch porn, but then like they'll take sins like being like, I've seen this where it's like, well, I have like a shoplifting addiction and it's like, you will never ever know like your shoplifting addiction sweet white child (laughs) is going to Abercrombie and getting a thrill of like wearing a shirt out of the store because you have some weird ass crypto mindset I don't even know like something's (laughs) going on there that is not right but when you say that that is like a sin that is punishable by death and then you also simultaneously live in a country where oftentimes shoplifting is the only way people are going to eat or have clothes on their backs like it is so so privileged and I see a lot of you know these values instilled into this is kind of a tangent but it goes off of what was on my stories this week but I see a lot of people who like foster especially foster but also adopt black or brown children and especially in the foster domain when they like indoctrinate them with evangelical Christianity um, then they go back to their world you know once um, once their parents get custody of them again or their family member or what have you and they're often faced with sexual assault a need to shoplift or to you know cut corners in order to have food on the table or have clothes on their back or whatever and all of these things in their you know white, bubble that they were put in for months or years were taught as like extreme sin, like punishable by death and hell. But then they go back over into their real world home or their real world world family life. And they're effectively, you know, sinning every day in one way or another, and it fucks up their psyche. So I know Mm -hmm. that's a huge tangent, but that's something that like, just like rubs me the wrong way. Um, among many, many reasons why I just really don't give a shit. Like, I do not like it when someone comes on. There was another girl from like my old church and like she made a huge thing about her porn addiction and porn recovery. And I was like, I really feel like you could have kept that to yourself. Like, I, I really do. Like, I really don't feel that any of us have benefited from this in any way. Um, and if there are people that have benefited from it, then they might like have some internalized oppression of their own or guilt or what have you, you know? And that's not to say that there's not a lot of problematic shit happening in the porn industry because there is, and that's a whole nother podcast episode, but to, you know, in overtly shame sex workers in order to like 
have your moment of getting, you know, X amount of comments calling you brave and calling you redeemed and all of that. It's just very bizarre to me. So anywho, it's that same culture that she put this out and it was just like talking about how she had um, same sex attraction, but she turned to the Lord and it was just all forgiven and she doesn't have that anymore. So don't worry about her. And also like, here are all the biblical reasons why same sex attraction is a sin. And then probably like my favorite part is where she basically said that it wasn't the attraction that was the problem. It was the action. Oh, and then a bunch of people came at her in the comments, people that identify as the same religion that she is. Uh huh. Basically, like, it's not just the action, it's the attraction itself that you have to beg for forgiveness for. Like, these are their exact words. Like, and so I'm like, y'all can't even get on a united front with your own, like, with your own. Like, you Christian evangelicals don't even have a united stance on where God draws the line amongst your own congregation, let alone pitching to the masses of individuals who think you are actually absolutely smoking coke you know like (laughs) like I mean there's just so many things wrong but it was like my favorite part was just when she posted this so sure that she was going to be validated in her perspective that as long as she had these feelings that she was admitting to but didn't act on them then she was living in the Lord's light and then everybody was like that's not true girl you better not be lusting after no women like and she (laughs) it was just it was but anyways, I got I got in my head. I read a few hundred comments and I actually cried like because it was just so much uh, validation. There were individuals who were there saying that they were gay before they read that post and then they weren't gay anymore. I mean, just okay. like mind, mind fucking like mind fucking. And then her commenting back like many people have said that all praise to the most high like and it was just so much. So that was probably like one of my Debbie Downer parts of this week. But yeah, so just just weird times. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that, but they're definitely out there and they're they're popping off. Yeah, I have okay, well I mean we've talked about this before where like evangelical Christianity is like such a foreign thing to me. Due in part to the fact that like a lot of those issues um and a lot of just the basic uh, philosophical inconsistencies like my dad really hated and therefore like when he raised me was like we're not doing this bullshit like we are not right and he my dad is a very devout Christian both of my parents are but something that I was always taught as a kid uh was that people use religion as a means of validating their own val- of validating themselves and convincing themselves that they have value And that's one of the great parts of religion is, and that's one of the great parts of faith is like affirming your value, affirming, you know, giving life meaning, which is so important and lovely. And faith can be such a great service to that. But the problem is if you don't extend that grace and you don't extend that love and that sympathy to the other people around you, to the world around you, then you're really doing a disservice to the God you claim to serve. I'm not religious, but that was something that was always really taught to me. And it's so funny because so many of the points that you made, I've heard throughout my life, you know, I live in the Bible Belt, even though I, even though I grew up, you know, kind of a heathen. And those are literally words used by someone in my family. Um, <laughs> like, that's something that I'm aware of. Uh, yeah, no, I'll never forget sitting in, you know, two rooms over and my dad's talking to someone in my family. And she was like, you guys are heathens. And my dad was like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. 
But if you think that calling my children names makes you the better Christian here, then God bless you, girl. Bye. And so, so it's just, it's really heartbreaking <laughs> that that's how people are going through the world in the name of someone who, when you read about Christianity and when you read about like how Christ was supposed to be seen, it's so sad that that's like the message that they've taken away. And also on like a real practical level, why the fuck do you want a God who hates you? Like, why the fuck do you think that this is the person we're serving you? If you apply that logic to real life, if you apply that logic to like your marriage, if you apply that to a friendship, anybody who'd been to two therapy sessions would be like, bitch, this is not for you. Like you do not need to feel pain and sadness. And why is this something that we do? And I mean, we've talked about this before, but people are just so horny to gaslight each other to feel better about themselves. Um, Yes. Yeah, no, that's, yes. that's a really, really like interesting and like super juicy topic that like I don't feel super comfortable about because like I do genuinely want to respect people's faith journeys, but I just have so many takes. I'm like, I don't understand why people sign up for a situation where a situation where they're like, he hates me and I have to earn it. I don't deserve love. I'm like, that's not even what your scripture says to you. I, this is so sad to be, you're living such a sad existence and for what this is supposed to be good for you. But yeah, no. And I really sympathize with like reading the comment section because it's, it makes an already scary world. So scary that there are so many people around you who feel like that. And so, uh, oh, good Lord. Wait, good Lord. wait, that reminds me of something else that I need to bring up after this. Um, but yeah, just to close out, that is definitely all things that I've been thinking a lot about lately, like what have yeah. you upset now? And then I've also been thinking a lot about how Christians talk about how, or even Delta Christians talk about how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's a truth that I can't confirm or deny because I don't know God, you know, and, and, yeah. I, and I don't, I don't think that, I think it's very audacious for them to assume that they know God. But yeah. that being said, like, regardless of that, one thing that I know for sure that is very easy to disprove is that Christianity is the same yesterday, today, and forever because Christianity <laughs> has changed so dramatically yeah. years that it's like, I mean, we're talking about the same Christianity that colonized the United States. We're talking about the same Christianity that has colonized countless other countries. We're talking about the same Christianity that was used to enforce and impose and justify slavery. Um, we're talking about the same Christianity that, I, I mean, the odd audacity and and the same christianity where there have been many many thousands of millions of pulpits that have been stood on and said you know it is absolutely okay to treat women like this to do this to do this to do that i mean that are really really horrible horrible things to me the the one that really stands out is slavery um because there are a lot of of biblical references to slavery and that that for years and years and years was used to justify keeping a slave. Um, and it's so crazy how literally 60 years later, not even, we would never hear, I mean, unless you're talking about like Westboro Baptist, <laughs> we would never hear uh, of a church openly, you know, supporting slavery at the pulpit level. But literally 60 years ago, there was huge philosophical debates. There were conventions. There were everything. And we're starting to see that same exact thing now with the homophobia. I mean, now it's coming to fruition that the word, you know, homosexual wasn't even in the Bible until 1946. And there's all this like 
funding history with how the world word was even implemented through this hyper conservative organization or like party that had it implemented into it and what the original context was. And it's just all coming to fruition. And then that partnered with the incredible technology, um, just advancements in science, I should say, that are really starting to showcase, you know, why and how people are experiencing any form of like their LGBTQIA plus experience. I think that once the science develops a little bit more partnered with a lot of like the, you know, fallacy debunking that's going on on the part of like when and how the Bible was developed around these issues. I think it's pretty safe to assume that 60 years from now, the, you know, idea that at any pulpit that they're shaming sexuality, it won't be, it won't be a thing. And it'll be funny how there will be some new issue that is, uh, you know, related to social justice that they're using the Bible out of context for, and they'll be harping on that, acting like Christianity didn't have a major face makeover, you know, every 60 years or so. And so, and didn't just completely change their stance on things. I mean, for God's sake, Christianity changed its its stance dramatically on abortion over the years. Um, mm-hmm. And now today, with, Christi- with abortion being the lowest it's ever been, they're just now deciding that it is an absolute crisis. It's like, where were you guys when abortion was significantly more prevalent because there wasn't sex education and there weren't clinics, you know, um, they've really taken the wrong time. They talk about it as though it's like the worst it's ever been. And it's this, you know, major world war against these unborn children. And it's like, you were awfully silent. And not to mention the fact that many of your congregation, you know, congregations, they supported abortion in one way or another or funded organizations that did abortions or what have you. But Anywho, Christianity is definitely not a consistent thing, and that is something that gives me a lot of comfort. But um, one thing that I will say that made me think about the comment section when you said that you know what that's like is that the other comment section that I've been getting lost in recently is the comment section of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, um, Lord. <laughs> have you touched on this individual, or are you staying far, far away? I mean, she's impossible to avoid. Um, she is the worst. <laughs> I actually was going to say that um, it's interesting that you were bringing up like Christianity and people misusing Christianity because it relates a lot to, um, I think I told, I was talking to you about this earlier with just like the racial origins of fat phobia being based in, you know, a Protestantism and stuff like that and being used just throughout history as a social control, which is what I've been really falling down a rabbit hole of. Oh To answer your question, yes, I have been engaging with her um, ridiculous discourse. I don't want to use any sort of pejorative language because she is unhinged and I don't want to, you know, uh, throw any shade to people who are actually experiencing mental illness because she's just a bad person. But it comes off as like, it's, it feels like you are in a delusion when you listen to her speak. And I just, Mm -hmm. it's wild to me that there are people who find this compelling, who will just, and I think that's just sort of the theme, who will just wrap themselves up in knots if they can justify feeling important. And if they can justify this feeling of being slighted that they have. And she just, oh, she's so embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love that she was, you know, removed from a committee, but she's still serving in Congress. She's still spreading lies and not getting nearly enough consequences. And I, yeah. So yes, I have engaged with her horrendous, horrendous discourse. 
Uh, yeah. It's interesting because I was wondering actually for a couple of weeks, like if you knew her in any capacity that was different than how I knew her, not literally knew her, like knew her, but I mean, like if there was any tea, like that was like Georgia knew about it, but the rest of the world, it didn't really get out because I was thinking, oh, she's from Georgia. Like, but I think that when I looked at the map, I was like, oh, she's from a very, very different Georgia yeah. than Victoria's from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing is that <laughs> as I've described to you before, basically Georgia, which is like most states, but because we're in the South, there's more of like a, a pallor cast across it. But she, I believe, is from Rome, Georgia. I can't even, I've sort of had to like, I think she was born in Milledgeville and like the area that she represents is decently rural, majority white, you know, QAnon like kind of people. And so it's not that surprising that she is like that. It's sort of like people who are from Georgia are like, yeah, she's one of those people from out there who just sort of screams into the void and like they screw up their own area. And like most of the time their voices are not loud enough to where they get a lot of mainstream attention but they do bad things but she's just next level it was really 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 fascinating that she's sort of like tapped into this niche in this part of georgia and and she went to uga which is Mm. (laughs) you know she's a college educated person she's not someone who just showed up out of nowhere this is someone who is using i mean even if she believes all these things she is digitaling Did you watch the speech? It was like an eight-minute speech that she gave. Absolutely not, no. When she got the day that she got. Okay. (laughs) So that was very interesting, an anthropological perspective. Yeah, I think that's where you and I differ as, like, my anthropological undergrad and your politics undergrad. You have, like, a threat. I have a higher threshold for bullshit than you do um, (laughs) because I'm, like, I'm so interested why you are the way you are. Um, but that speech was interesting to say the least, because she effectively retracts like all of her QAnon connections. And, um, I don't know, it, it felt like a very forced apology or like a curated apology, um, which it very well may have been. It may have been a part of her plea deal for them not to like explore further disciplinary action, um, aside from taking her off of the committee but I just found that that video to be interesting because while it felt like she was doing it with a gun to her head it was still very much like I know I don't believe in any of this but she the way that she did it was very like storytelling so she gave her own timeline and it felt like I had a little bit more insight into like where she was indoctrinated and how and then she talks about how she realized that that was you know not truth and then of course she goes on to talk about and stand in a lot of just really problematic values that are problematic in and of themselves. But she acts like if they're detached from Q, that they're not problematic. Uh, um, it doesn't matter. It's out there. Yeah. You put it out right. there. She talks about the abortion generation and how it's just like a plague on society. She talks about how marriage is between one man and one woman and how, you know, only two genders exist. And so it it's interesting. It's it's interesting because they're still justifying all of these archaic views through the lens of Christianity, um, even if they're not justifying it through the lens of some more like fringe movement like Q, you know? Yeah. So I mean my dad is like that. I feel like I'm mentioning him a lot because he's the reason I'm so engaged, but he is the he's the person in my family who watches like Fox News as like opposition research. Um I think it was after Obama yeah. got elected, oh, he like tuned into Rush Limbaugh to laugh at him. And then like Rush Limbaugh went on 
uh, hiatus, like a little bit after Obama got elected. And my dad was just like cackling, wheezing. It's one of my favorite memories of him is him wheezing, laughing, making fun of Russia. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I just can't do it. It's like too much. I can't believe that people like that walk through the world. And I just, because I, you know, I was a student of poli sci, I just think of like the impact on institutions that they will have that the everyday person doesn't know about. And it just makes me like nervous in the same way that like watching someone cross the street without looking both ways, you're like, Oh no, like it's like that for me and I cannot do it. So. Oh my gosh. That's so good. I love that analogy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I see that for sure. And I feel like I like from the anthropological perspective, I can do it to a certain degree because like, I'm just like, well, they may get, run over by a car there may be some sort of a horrible accident but I'll also document that for my research yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm like that objective you know yeah but anyways, yes I want to circle back to um, basically for those of you that are listening I had said like you know what are some good topics we could talk about you know we were talking over text kind of deciding where we wanted this this podcast to go this episode to go and um, Victoria shared with me a very niche rabbit hole that she is down that I'm super excited to learn more about and I think is super relevant to nobody's damsel so I'm just gonna let you tell us everything about this um, the the origins of fat phobia is that what it is yeah the racial origins of fat phobia um oh my god I'm ready. I need to you look have- up the book title because it's based on this text that was written by a sociologist. I mean, I sort of had gotten into it anyway, just because I feel like diet culture is a crock of shit. And like, I just realized that as I get older and sort of process my childhood and process my things and hear my friends process those things that like, I like every, you know, uh, AFAB in the world, any sort of femme, any sort of someone performing femininity and, you know, people performing masculinity as well you know, I have my things about like body and body dysmorphia and food and stuff like that. I realized I dodged a damn bullet. And I, it was one of those things where I did not realize how pervasive and internalized diet culture was for literally everyone around me. And then I sort of in the world, because I'm a big old nerd. um, I was like, what is that? Like, what is going on with that? When did that start? This is not how we always felt. You know, when you look at old art images those girls have big tits you know they've got belly rolls and no one cares like when did we start feeling like being skinny was like the height of like self-control and that's the other thing is oh my gosh no this is so interesting it's also perfect because we have um two amazing guests coming on the first week of March. So two weeks from now that are going to be, they're both eating disorder recovery Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to be talking about their EDs and everything. But I happen to know them both personally and they would both like live for this conversation. So it's a nice combination of of the two things combining. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because at least in the United States globally, it's pretty interesting, but in the United States um, sort of fat shaming, fat phobia um, at least based on some of the newer research, is has racial origins. And it is, you know, originated in, <laughs> which is just so funny, because I feel like if you go to college, at, you know, after 2010, you learn this, like everything is related to um, <laughs> colonialism, specifically cr- Christian colonialism, which was most colonialism, and the Atlantic slave trade. And basically that because of those two things, the general 
spread throughout the population, this increasing focus on controlling your body, on tempering yourself so that you seem like a paragon of control was all about racial belonging. It was all about Christianity and piety and, you know, that Protestant work ethic. And it was part of this overall messaging campaign to help justify the Atlantic slave trade and to help justify the oppression of Black people. And so that's something that I've been really diving into lately. And it just sort of dovetails with a lot of stuff, especially in, um, in the vein of Black history, because I today I was actually listening I to was you. Just, yeah, this is like perfect Black History Month, yeah. as I was just going to say. Yeah, and it dovetails into a lot of stuff. Can so, you... Sorry? I think we I was just going to say, can you define... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, can you define the um, transatlantic slave um, trade for those that might not know it, or at least to the best of your ability, just because I don't... I feel like people are going to be like, wait, what's that? Sure. Um, in a very simple description, the transatlantic slave trade was the practice of, um, you know, mostly white, but not just uh, white explorers and traders going to the African continent, robbing people, stealing people, murdering, and, you know, transporting them across the ocean to different colonies to help, um, you know, build new colonies and help these European nations develop and become empires. It was all part of empire building. And it, you know, went on for 300 so years. And then the US was like, we're going to stop importing them. And we're just going to make a self-fulfilling slave population. And it's just, you know, this ongoing systemic 400 year long degradation of blackness, displacement of black people as part of this like global campaign for European dominance that basically informs every single aspect of our lives to this day. And it's really, really, it's depressing to look into, but it's super interesting, just the impact of this Mm. time where the whole goal was just basic capitalism. It was a way to find the cheapest labor possible so that you can maximize profits. And it's so interesting. And I mean, I'm sure part of my fascination is that I'm from the South and I'm a Black woman. So these are not subjects from which I was ever shielded if anything that was like the lion's mm. share of my media growing up and the lion's share of the narrative that I was fed was like you know slavery Jim Crow all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so it's always just super interesting for me to see where that came from and how it sort of informs things and so I've been reading a lot about um, the racial origins of fat phobia recently just because for some reason for a lot of reasons that's just sort of been in my face and there's some really great um people doing work online and also just doing really great academic texts that I've been reading. I just finished, um, there's a, she was formerly anonymous. She's not anonymous anymore, but her online name is your fat friend. She is not actually, um, a black identifying person of color. She's a white lady, but she is a really fantastic queer white lady writer named Aubrey Gordon. She goes by your fat friend, like I said, and she wrote this book called what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. And that is like a really great primer in sort of like fat liberation and, you know, the sort of oppression that fat people experience and the origins of sort of like body things. And what's really interesting in the way it dovetails in is that, you know, black people already disproportionately get really shitty healthcare, but <laughs> the fat phobia and fat stigma yes. part of things is an example of how even just basic stuff that we never challenge is also routed in racism and, perpetuates racism so like today i learned about the bmi on this podcast that i was listening to and how the bmi is 
even the BMI is racist. One, the BMI is pseudoscience. It's stupid. It's not meant to actually do what it does. Um, but the BMI disproportionately classifies people of color as obese. And <laughs> what's also really interesting is that because the BMI is this like arbitrary, not really scientific thing, it's meant for statistics and it's meant just for like population analysis. It's not meant to help inform policy and stuff like that. And it's just been misused. There's this great headline that said, uh, you know, such and such million people just became fat and they haven't gained any weight. And it's because the U.S. government arbitrarily lowered the standard <laughs> for what obese was. Oh, my God. And it's really interesting because the BMI was developed uh, based on statistics from a white population, from a really small group. And so that's really just what I've been researching a lot so if there's anything specific because it's such a big thing I can try yeah I mean I'm so fascinated with all facets of this yeah. just because I feel like and I've talked about this on the podcast before um, kind of a theme in my life uh, same with the anthropological the decision to go into anthropology um, and to look at things through that lens has just been the constant constant what I call turning the lights on on my monsters or on the monsters in the world in general. Yeah. Like I find so much freedom in like understanding the origin or the reason why like something happens, whether that be socially or physiologically or psychologically or whatever. Like those are just like things that I feel like the second that I know the why it feels freeing like there's a monster but I'm shining a light on it so no it's no longer a monster yeah absolutely Obviously, you know fat phobia is a monster and it's astronomical and diet culture is not just alive but it's well and it's thriving and it's you know it's a multi-million dollar barely regulated industry it's crazy and it's killing people and it's wild mm -hmm. um the sociologist who wrote um one of the like pretty seminal texts of the time was saying that she was inspired to sort of look into this area because she was working at an AIDS clinic and she had two minority women look her in the eye and say they did not want to start taking AIDS medication because they feared gaining weight. And she was like, oh, I thought this was like something that mostly affected white people. How is this permeating into brown spaces? And so it's been super interesting mm -hmm. to learn about and to learn that like everything is just based in social control and based in belonging and based in justifying keeping people down. It's the worst, but it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it truly is. I, um, I know we're talking specifically about, you know, the way that it's impacting black and brown spaces. Um, my own experience of like, you know, struggling with my body, which is, I think a sentiment that every single woman shares like I, I mean I literally do not know a woman that hasn't at least questions if they're questioning their body yeah like maybe it doesn't ever go further than that and then they're lucky if it doesn't but in terms of like at least at the bare minimum questioning if you question it that is something that has been a huge struggle for I would say everyone and it has like you said per permeated so many different spaces so many different social classes it's just kind of this universal situation that people are body conscious. And it is very, very sad. I have been really fortunate to not have huge body dysmorphia. However, like it's definitely prevalent in my life. And it's definitely something that I've struggled with. I grew up, um, you know, in one of the whitest, most affluent suburbs in, in Southern California. And it was a, a 
joke how skinny my peers were. Like they were, yeah. you know, everyone to this day, to this day, fast forward, and we're all what, 24, 25 year old women. Um, the majority of my peer group that I was, you know, in, in school with then, it's still between a size zero, maybe a size four. I'm a size eight. And so like I had, I was always back then when I was a size, you know, four or six, and now I've grown into my womanhood and I'm a size eight, like I was still a size four to six um, amongst peers growing up who were double, double zeros or, you know, literally could wear like children's clothes. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I don't know about it through the lens of, of what you're explaining, although I'm really excited to ask you some questions about it because like I said, it feels like turning a light on it. Um, but it definitely resonates, like just talking about body dysmorphia or whatever. I recently had a pretty big issue with body dysmorphia and I, I don't want to get too much into it on the podcast, but like basically where I had just like, it had come to my attention that somebody that I knew in my past had, had lost a lot of weight. And for some reason, even though in the time that, you know, we had not been connected and that we had gone our separate ways um, in our personal lives, I had grown exponentially and I had started all these projects and I was, you know, excelling in my career, both professionally and academically and like all of this stuff. I had like a two day stint where I was like, if I don't lose a bunch of weight, then I'm less than. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And like how, and it, it just sucks so badly because, and it's almost the same as like when no matter, it's akin to how no matter what you do as a female, like if you get your PhD, if you literally are a rocket scientist, they will still be like, oh, that's nice. When are you going to have kids? Yeah. Or like literally like no matter what, but if you're a male and you do all of those things, like they're not going to ask you that. They're just going to say like, congratulations, that's amazing. But you could be on the moon and they're still going to be asking you in interviews if you're ever going to have children, if you're ever going to get married. And so it's the way that like those things are so intimately interconnected and yeah. like seen as like, you know, being skinny, being fit, being of the right BMI, whatever is seen as like, you can get the most high allocates for that, like the most high. And there are times when like, I'll produce a project that is like hours and hours, hundreds of hours of work. And people will be like, cool. If I lose 10 pounds to take a picture of myself, I'll get a hundred comments. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, are you kidding me? Or like I put on makeup I get a hundred DMs like you are so beautiful. But if the night before I said something, you know, of extreme sustenance, but I didn't have the face of makeup on, I'm going to get a quarter of the engagement. So these are a lot of things that like, that's what body dysmorphia means to me. And then it's interesting to find out that not unlike everything else, it's rooted in this like, you know, racist origin and that it's impacting disproportionately, of course, because everything is disproportionately impacting um, you know, these black and brown communities and all of that. So that's kind of where my mind goes with it. I don't know if there's any overlap with what you're learning and kind of like, I guess my biggest question would just be like, why? And I know you had said that it was because of, um, you know, them needing to population control, but I would love to know if you know anything about like what that looks like or how it translates to today. Oh, so yeah. Um, what I was, what's interesting based on what you said is that it was sort of, it's a lot of things, of course, because most aspects of our culture are, but it seems to me that there is this theme, at least in the historical aspect of cultural belonging, right? So there is this concept that in order to be 
um, truly white. And it's really interesting. There's like a whole field of study about like assigning, you know, whiteness to people and how you earned the label of white. Um, But in order to be like a good white Christian and therefore to be American in the late 18th and 19th century, having temperance and control and like embodying certain specifically Protestant, but generally Christian ideals um, was really, really married with the concept of uh, self-control, you know, not indulging in eating or drink. And it was all part of this social belonging apparatus that was built in part on looking a certain way so that you could differentiate yourself as much as possible from black people specifically, and therefore justify keeping them at a disadvantage, keeping them in chains, keeping them as a labor force so that you could keep making money at a huge profit. And so it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of means of social control do that all to sort of like serve daddy capitalism. But that's really what I've been learning about a lot recently. And then, um, Less so, uh, so interesting. Yeah. And so that's a super interesting aspect. And it's also, you know, deeply harmful. It's so interesting because like, even though black people make up 13% of the population, black people and white people are considered quote unquote obese at similar rates. It's like 42 and 49%. So this is clearly um, more of a confounding factor than it is like a social factor or a bodily factor. There's a lot of other things that contribute to, um, you know, weight and body shape and things like that. And what's also interesting is that even though obesity is cast as this inherently unhealthy thing, uh, black people are considered to be healthier at higher weights than like their white counterparts a lot of the time. And so it's just sort of this thing that we applied arbitrary meaning to and then sort of ran with in service of just social control. Something else that's super interesting, I have so many things I've been in such a rabbit hole is that like the president of fitness ready. test? Do you here, remember that health school once a year in PE where you had to like do the flexed arm hang? Oh my God, I do remember that. You just unlocked a memory It for is me. a crock of xenophobic shit. It was like, <laughs> it was meant, it was instituted oh as a way to like own the commies and to like help America's children be strong and fit so that like we would outdo the Soviets. It's not any sort of thing. It was the 60s kids were actually like, very very active it was a crock of bullshit it was just meant as a way to like encourage children to like get up and move and perform these random calisthenics metrics in order to own you know the communists and it's ridiculous and it's all just about belonging and being better than and so yeah and it has real impacts on people you know fat stigma has real impacts on people and like we can talk about it from a lot of different angles, but I've been looking at it recently through the lens of um, specifically medical racism and the impact that it has on the treatment you get on, you know, being shamed for, you know, your weight often leads people to avoid um, getting any sort of medical intervention often prevents physicians from finding good diagnoses because it's such a catch all now that you often find where people will have, you know, tumors and stuff like that. And rather than, And for a lot of reasons, you know, they go undiagnosed and all because we have this collective fixation on bodies and because the diet industry and the body, like (laughs) the body morphing industry, whatever you want to call it, is so profitable and difficult to regulate. There isn't really any sort of incentive um, from the governments and or even in those industry ends to regulate and to aim towards a less prescriptive description of how bodies should be because it's a multi-billion dollar industry that is growing constantly so yeah 
Right. And it's, it's interesting because the domineering companies or MLMs or what have you that are profiting off of this body dysmorphia, um, there's almost no representation, right? Yeah. Like how often do you see someone who is like, you know, making the that good, good money that is brown or black that has, you know, made their living getting a six pack with an MLM product or something like that? Like they, that literally does not exist. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I had actually just learned about medical racism recently um, through the Rachel Cargill uh, 30-day Do the Work Challenge. Mm-hmm. That was my first introduction to medical racism, although it's kind of sad that that was my first introduction because obviously a lot of white individuals got to um, just be oblivious for a lot longer than we should have been. So, But anyways, it's it's definitely fresh on my mind, the whole medical racism thing, and that changed. Like That was one of the like there was like maybe like five or six days of the 30 day challenge that she did where I was like, Oh my gosh, I want to do like an excessive amount of research on this day. Mm-hmm. And uh, medical racism was one for me that was super interesting. I actually had a, a pediatrician message me um, after, you know, doing it cause we were doing it together on my stories and she, I didn't know she was a pediatrician. She was just one of the hundred people that paid like the five bucks to do it in our group. And, um, but she just talked about how this was totally changing, like the breadth of like her work. And it's just interesting because people literally can go and get their doctorate and never hear the term medical racism. Yeah. And you think about becoming a doctor is inherently, there's such a huge barrier to entry as it is. So you're already getting a field of people that skews rich, that skews white, that skews heavily privileged, and therefore skews away from having any sort of contact with people who don't look and act just like them. And so it becomes very, very easy to see how these sort of inherently problematic ideas become fact when they often are not true or they lack nuance because that's how science is. Science requires nuance and it's really hard to communicate medical information accurately because it's complex, because these electrified meat sacks that we call bodies are complicated. Um, So yeah. Yeah. And then we can also just talk about how most medical studies are based on white men and you just sort of learn. And I think it just sort of goes to this overall point that like oppression starts out by disproportionately affecting a minority group. That's how it works. That's how it thrives but it always builds up and impacts people who are in the majority. That's just what happens. And so I just think it's important to sort of learn about, you know, these institutions and these social ideas that we just take as blind fact and just sort of investigate. And it's not only do I think, okay, this might be an unpopular opinion. I might, I don't even know how to say this without like potentially getting some backlash, Uh but I honestly feel like not only do like is it this super relevant information that should be shared and talked about, I honestly feel like uh, especially the white women who uphold and like um, distribute this misinformation, whether that be for profit, whether they're part of an MLM or they're just, you know, finding their identity and working out and wanting to share that with people. I feel like that those actions are inherently racist when you look at the backdrop of which they are like what they're effectively profiting off of is a racist you know institution that was built on these racist ideals and so when you perpetuate the narrative that you need to have a six-pack to be happy or you need to drink this tea to have like you know a good love life or whatever you're also kind of profiting directly off of this um this racist history. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
And, and so, yeah. It's just such a crock of shit too. Like you just learn that like, and then we get into sort of like perpetuating disordered attitudes. And really, even though, you know, I understand fully, you know, wanting the satisfaction of achieving a goal or, you know, actually, you know, taking care of preventing any sort of illnesses that you feel like you may predispose, be predisposed to. But the truth of the matter is, is that we as a culture have systemically normalized really, really harmful behaviors and internalize them and encourage each other to do it. And we don't think about it because there's this weird correlation between absolute health and like quantifying our health and that directly being related to our value. And it's just not true. It's more complicated than that. 100%. Yeah. I mean, but think about how freaking flustered for back of a letter for lack of a better word like a woman would be if you approached her and said that she was being inherently racist she would literally nine out of ten be like this is the most ridiculous cancel culture in the entire world I mean you know (laughs) that like if that was stance that was like widely taken or that it like started to come up in the spaces of like BLM you know advocacy or whatever um it's just like Hold on. Yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things. Um, So, yeah, I just – I think about this all the time. And it's also funny because I don't even know why, like, I care – like, because I have been a victim of this. And I have bought in the teas and I have been, like – you know, someone who finds their identity and is trying to work out every day or whatever for a very brief amount of time. I have ADHD, so I'm literally <laughs> right. I'm not capable of. of I don't have the food. energy to learn diet stuff. I don't have the energy to learn food science. I can't focus on it that much, and it feels like I, know, I just yeah. I and like you said, like and I talk about this all the time. Like, um, well, for me, like my whole thing and my whole like life philosophy is very much like legacy minded, not reputation minded, That's and awesome. so. Um, anything that like fits under the reputation category just really doesn't matter to me. And I have never been to a funeral where they were like, she was 135 pounds for these. (laughs) I've literally never been to a funeral. And so I always think about like my funeral, my memoir, my autobiography, my biography. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, chances are none of those places where legacy is being built is my exact weight going to be posted up. And, you know, think about the the great leaders that we know about in history. Do we know their weight? Do we really even know, you know, much about their body types? And then, like, also, like, there's just so many beautiful things about people that we don't know, like where their birthmarks were or, you know, just all these really, like, things to romanticize past individuals who had a serious impact on the world for the better. Um, in general, I just don't think in that way. And so there's a part of me that being from where I'm from, I can get sucked into it on a bad day. Day, but then there's an like an overwhelming part of me that's like, well, first of all, I don't even like skinny women. So <laughs> like, no offense to skinny women, but I don't I'm not sexually attracted to skinny women is what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. in the nicest way possible. So first of all, that's a no go for me. Second of all, in general, like I just don't find myself in a situation where I could imagine devoting a significant amount of time to like it being my hobby when my normal hobbies are normally like very legacy minded or very just like, you know, policy minded or political minded or like, how can I help them do outreach in the community? And I'm not dismissing that there's not a healthy combination of like, okay, you know, you want to go work out, like you said, to put yourself not at risk of predisposing yourself to 
all of that, whatever. But when it becomes like that culture, that obsession, that's something that I just, I, I could literally never be a part of it because it wouldn't be fruitful to me, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's where I differ from like my peer group, but don't think that I don't see it. Like I have a lot of friends who are size zero, size two, and they're, they're in a situation where they're still like, I'm so fat. Yeah. And it's, I think what really started me on learning about this is that, um, uh, gosh, I think it was over a year ago, I got into this like weird Twitter war with this very famous, um, like Twitter personality. This guy was talking about, um, I can't remember what, oh, I think he like retweeted some sort of meme that was basically saying like, when you complain about your body to people who are physically bigger than you, you are telling them that it is you know, abhorrent to look like them. So maybe, and maybe, and that was the message was, you know, no one. Yeah, that was the message. And he just like his girlfriend, I think had gotten in trouble for sharing it. And so he thought he was defending her. And we were just like, this is not it, sis. And then like, from that, (laughs) I was just like, yeah, this is really weird. And I want to learn like what people are doing to sort of dismantle this way of thinking, because it seems ridiculous. And that's sort of how I dipped my toes in and started following some really cool people and also started like finding some really great literature. And it ended up being this like really affirming activity that like, I had always considered myself pretty lucky having sort of, you know, dodged the proverbial bullet of not having a ton of body related insecurities, but also realizing that like, I wasn't immune to them and that these were not inherent truths. These were things I was taught. So Mm -hmm. like, just breaking that down. Yeah, no, I. And it's also just really exciting. Like, I told. You know, as a left wing wing nut, you've sort of learned all the stuff that, like, it's so funny being like a liberal, like not even liberal, gosh, like leftist or whatever I am now. Just, um, <laughs> just <a communist laughs> freak. I don't even know what to call myself at this point. But it's so funny because you sort of learn about all the social justice things and you're like watching people learn it for the first time. And you're like, get on the ride, guy. Like everyone's suffering and everything's made up. So learning about a new aspect of oh, culture and the way that that was bullshit and tied into other stuff was just really exciting. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I am in the same boat where... I was raised moderate, if not conservative. Um, And then when I was able to vote, I mean, very early on, like by the time that I was 18, I knew that I was a Republican. I mean, I I knew that I was a Democrat. Ooh. Um, (laughs) I knew that I was Democrat. I never voted Republican. I never let, like, you know, my influence growing up impact. By the time that I was 18, I was already very Democratic-minded or, like, left-leaning. Although, you know, of course, like, family and family friends were saying things like, you just wait till you get older. You'll become a Republican. You you know the trope. Yeah. Uh, But anyways, like, it is interesting that you bring that up because that's something else that I've been wrestling with a lot is, like, how to come back, especially in the space, like, that I've built on social media that is a rapidly evolving space. It really is. And in that sense, I mean, there's a lot of overturn. There's a lot of, like, as I grow, like, certain populations die off or they don't follow me anymore and the new followers come. And it's just kind of this, like, very... Um, transient space in a lot of ways, and and it, I love that because I'm I don't I don't need to be in that space, right? That's a that's mm-hmm. an extra. That's something that like I me showing up and curating a brand identity there would be very reputational in nature and not legacy building. And it's also just like 
that is not, I have two children and I'm in school and I have all this stuff. Like I'm not going to waste my time creating like a fictitious version of self to be able to like appease the people that are watching or consuming my content. Mm -hmm. However, there are a lot of people, God bless them. They're really great people who are moderates or even Republicans or what have you, who are staying to learn and grow and who are like, they're like what I would call the OGs, like who have been through so many different versions of me as I've evolved and come into my own. And it's funny because I'm like, I literally just said last night, I was like, I don't know how to tell them, but I don't really identify as a Democrat anymore. <laughs> like, I don't know how to tell them that like, I identify more as an abolitionist. Yeah. Um, I also like don't know because I've always like in the back of my mind had this like heart for potentially going into politics. And I know that like I risk a lot having a podcast and potentially wanting to like commingle those two things. Hopefully there will be a way to like take this podcast down. But if there's not, um, I also don't want to be like inauthentic in my podcast because I'm afraid about some future hypothetical what if. And so like I'm hoping that it's it's all about language and linguistics, right? And like the lack of um, variety in language and how like me saying I'm a Democrat or me saying I'm an abolitionist or whatever to you, you and I are on the same page and we're like, oh yeah, me too. But then like when you say that to somebody else who is still like very washed in evangelical conservatism or what have you, like the word abolitionist or the word socialism or all of these hot button words that they have, like they have an entirely different perspective of what that means, right? Yeah. And they might not even, like, they hear the same word because we have such a narrow, like, ability to, like, there's no word variety. English is a very plain language. And listen, I have a, I I feel like I think about this, like, I think about Air Force Ones, that it eventually, like everything else that Black people do, it will trickle down to them and they will learn that I was not crazy or weird. And they're going to rock this, like, abolitionist thing. It might take them a long time. But that's okay. <laughs> like one day, you know, now right, I'm right, a bunch right, of right. girls in sundresses wearing Air Force Ones. And when I was a kid, it was all people who looked like me. And so I just kind of hope that that's the same thing that'll happen with the language, you know. And it's definitely good to like I understand yes. wanting to bring people along. But what I find is that learning about this stuff, learning about the origins of all this stuff, deepens your empathy, and it just creates a bigger and bigger well for me for compassion for people because you know fat stigma what I'm learning about is like fat liberation and literally you know treating fat people like people but it's also understanding again that like Mm -hmm. oppression trickles down and hits everybody you know money does not trickle down Reagan was wrong but um oppression trickles down and impacts everyone (laughs) and so (laughs) yeah yeah so Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but I do understand like wanting to bridge that gap and sort of like bring them along to learn, but also being like, you'll figure it out. And if you don't, okay. (laughs) No, 100%. No, I appreciate that insight because it is something that I struggle with where I like I am on my own deconstruction journey on my own political journey. And I'm moving at a very quick like I call it the fire hose because for like my friends and family. Um, that, like it's a fire hose pace and I feel like I'm waking up like different yesterday than I was today and you know conservatives like one of their tropes is basically like they'll say just pick a stance and that is such a trope because it's like well no because deconstruction by definition should be that you're gradually evolving and that you're changing but it's on this progression it's in this line of change where you're 
becoming awake and aware of this and that and that and that and then you're you know you're changing but for me like the the most recent election and I haven't been terribly terribly upset with some of the stuff that Biden is doing there hasn't been any moment where I've been like I hate that but I have been upset with some of the lack of what he's been doing um I guess that's been my bigger concern is like it is more like the apathy around certain issues and a lot of like the performative politics that are going on at, at, in the White House right now mm-hmm. um are problematic but for me personally and like my decision to become more abolition minded is just really because I see that a lot of like the day-to-day stuff happening in our own neighborhoods are just not ever going to be influenced by our federal politics unless we rise up and demand that they are. Yeah. I mean, he's broken a lot of promises. Um, I do immigration stuff. So like he recently put out a memo basically being like, oh, I promise I would you love that I'd stop. Off of hmm? I would love for you to like share, like I, there's time for that. Like I would love for you to talk a little oh, bit sure. about what you've been disappointed. By yeah. So um, he basically put up, put out a memo that is sort of doing what he's kind of done with all his campaign promises, which I saw coming, but I had hope and I was just really excited to like be able to breathe a little bit and, you know, join the Paris climate accords and whatever. But, you know, um, ICE is involved in a lot of like really um, inhumane deportation practices and a lot of, um, basically setting up these frameworks that makes it really, really, really difficult for the most vulnerable um, people trying to come to the U.S. for any sort of relief, making it really difficult for them to even obtain legal status and sort of keeping in place these Obama-era and some Trump-era um, regulations for deporting people and sort of backing away from his promise to you know, treat migrants like humans. Um, so that's been disappointing. Um, it's also been interesting. I haven't really seen a ton of mm-hmm. the guidance yet on like, I do business immigration mostly. So that's, you know, people coming in who work for big companies who are paying them a lot of money. And even the guidance on that has sort of shifted towards this like, um, business minded, um, sort of like putting a financial metric on people based on their pay and stuff like that. And that's not great either, because, you know, if we're saying we want great, you know, quote unquote, good immigrants, people with degrees and stuff like that. And we're making it even difficult for this very small part of the workforce to get here and sort of focusing it on, you know, what economics you offer a country when they're already contributing to a company that directly contributes to the American economy. I could yell about it for forever. So that's been sort of disappointing, but it is sort of, we are seeing um, a loosening of really stringent interpretations of certain rules and so it is sort of getting back to a system that like a good immigration lawyer can finagle on your behalf but um, there's a lot of people who can't afford a good immigration mm-hmm. lawyer so it's kind of a hundred percent right. yeah yeah who are who are good immigration lawyers going to like affluent immigrants is that who gets yeah. them so the easiest way for I mean it's not easy it's incredibly expensive and difficult and the standards are ridiculous but there are certain um the immigrants that I work with they work in um sectors that are considered sort of like under um there aren't enough people in the United States to fill those jobs so it's a lot of um computer scientists certain like healthcare workers sometimes charity workers stuff like that um So I deal with a lot of Mm -hmm. doctors who are coming in and working on COVID stuff, or I deal with a lot of um, computer scientists who are helping, you know, these big, big 
every major brand that you see on a commercial, I've probably done an immigration thing for. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, so it's going there. It's going for people who are helping make big companies richer. But it's really gratifying because, you know, they're helping a car company uh, design an SUV, right? Or like they're helping a bank with their banking app, right? But they're also, you know, these really lovely families who are then like bringing over their grandmothers. And, you know, I've gotten like my friend got a really lovely like Diwali blessing from one of her clients and stuff. So it's really great in that we are still helping people who very earnestly are excited to be in this country and who are genuinely, you know, contributing in the way that we feel like immigrants, quote unquote, should. But yeah, it's going towards people who are affluent, people who were able to get college degrees, people who are working for big bank companies. So they're not necessarily vulnerable, um, as vulnerable as others, but they are still very much people who are gr- are great and deserve to, you know, achieve and deserve to go and do mm-hmm. great things. So, yeah. So interesting. That's exactly like, that's something that I'm coming up against now because I've been doing some mutual aid work here in San Diego. Um, and I've also just been putting my ear to the ground. I've been in a lot of behind the scenes meetings, trying to understand mutual aid and trying to get connected with the right mutual aid resources here so that I'm not overstepping, trying to understand the, um, I guess, the grid of how the mutual aid in our county works, which is very disorganized right now just because there's not a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and then like very much disassociating myself from any sort of like problematic charities or anything like that, making sure that I'm not, um, you know unintentionally partnering with a problematic charity or what have you. But the reason I bring that up kind of feels like it's not relevant, but it is just because um, I noticed like that correlation of like, you. so basically like one of the biggest things with mutual aid is like, you're just giving out whatever you have to anybody with no prerequisite, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's how you get like mutual aid funds or mutual aid, whatever it is, um, items, PPE into the hands of like the most vulnerable, vulnerable members of the population, rather that be like our, our extreme addicts, our extreme schizophrenics, our extremely disabled. And like through the same lens, like with like law or with just with anything in general, like it's interesting how we don't prioritize our most vulnerable first. We prioritize like the people who are quote unquote poor or in need of support in some other way that can prove it somehow. So they're not the least of these. They're that de- like they're they're the ones that are like right above it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like the people who and then that just goes into like a huge philosophical conversation about how, like regulating who deserves like in the mutual aid sense like with charity like we know that like charities shelters so many things they come with like major stipulations and a lot of that comes from like you have to be clean you have to work you have to do this you have to do that and like whereas mutual aid is literally like I will give you this no matter who you are, what you are, what you've done. Yeah. And then like, it's the same thing that I'm hearing um, is like, you know, you have to be select, not you personally, but people in, you know, that are actually good immigration lawyers that can actually really defend these vulnerable, you know, individuals, they're not the most vulnerable. And that goes into like a huge conversation around like who, who do we need to be funneling these resources to first, you know? And I personally, at least in like the unsheltered population believe that some of the most vulnerable that never get served by charities that never get even, you know, picked or chosen for any sort of shelter or whatever. um, They're the ones we should be prioritizing. And I think in the same vein, like there's a lot of immigrants who are vulnerable, who are disabled, who are experiencing medical traumas or medical needs 
needs are, you know, imminent that are literally never going to get served because they could never afford a lawyer. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me, this concept of, you know, that we have applied to charity because in a Republic, right. The idea is that you have charities in order to make up for the government's blind spots because the government is never going to be able to inherently understand, like meet all of the needs of people. And you set up a charity with the idea that like you advocate and eventually, hopefully the government, at least in big government models, the government can help absorb that. And then, you know, Republicans sort of think that like the charities will just exist and like (laughs) just do the work. And so we don't include the government in it at all, which is just like ridiculous. But it's also still this thing where we have applied all these metrics and we've decided there's like a deserving needy. There's a deserving poor and we still put these metrics on people. Yes. And, you know, some people like to, you know, pay lip service and be like, oh, it's so we prevent, you know, people who don't need money from like taking advantage of the system when like you look at the numbers and that doesn't happen nearly as much as, you know, Ronald Reagan and his welfare queen stories would like you to believe. It doesn't. People who are in need will try and get services. Mm-hmm. People who are not are not trying to go and go through all the hoops, you know? And so... Yeah, no. Right. Yes. And it's just interesting. And again, sort of plays back into this weird Protestantism where like you have to deserve things and you have to earn the good things in your life rather than just the concept of like you are a human being who just by being born on this earth deserves a basic standard of life. And that's sort of and figuring out how to make that happen is like the amazing work of mutual aid groups. And it's yeah, it's complicated and it's because we made a system. That it's doesn't like them. they become politicized. Yeah, mutual aid groups become politicized and become outcast and become critiqued because you're giving too much to the least of these or whatever, you yeah. know, and it's just so. And that, yeah, the one mutual aid group that we have here in San Diego, they're called We All We Got SD. And like they're just very. Um, they're not politically neutral at all, which was a big, um, I'm trying to partner with them right now. I'm, I'm hoping for a meeting soon. They're, they're kind of collaborating on, on deciding if I would be a good fit for, for, for them or namely if like me having, um, because I'm, I'm converting, I'm, I'm moving on April 1st and I'm converting the garage to um, a mutual aid like setup. And so that's really exciting. And I was trying to see if they wanted any part of that, like if they wanted to house a certain amount of, of items there, or PPE there or whatever. But anyways, just in my communication with them, like one thing that I noticed that's so different than all the charities that I had, you know, like I didn't reach out to any charities because I decided that they were all too problematic, but I definitely researched them and was trying to like get intel to see if they would be a good partnership. And like one thing is, is that these charities are like so politically neutral. And then we all we got SD is literally like hashtag fuck ice. Hashtag fuck ice. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, I see we're dealing with two very different things here. And what's difficult is like, as much as I personally align, like, um, with these types of mutual aid groups, like 100%, it's also hard, because for me, like policy reform, politics, all of those things, like, I'm very passionate about them. And I worry about like, I I don't know, I I don't want to entirely say that I don't want to go into those fields, you know, and mm-hmm. with mutual aid, you really can't duly be in like in, in the mutual aid field. And I don't know, it's just complicated. But then at the same time, it's like, no, fuck ice and fuck, fuck the police. Like, and so, <laughs> and so it's not like, it's just this weird line to walk, but yeah, the history of the why, which is obviously like why, like what 
Black History Month should be. A lot of people don't understand that. There's been a lot of, like, confusion, I think, around, like, what Black History Month is, which is unfortunate because it's literally all in the title. Like, um, but I think for a lot of people, there was this, like, false, like, idea in their mind that Black History Month was going to be a month when um, people were getting, like, super educated on, like, racism and racial biases and all of that. And it's like, well, no, we're just talking about, like, what and how we got here and like and what you know and so it's it's a it's a history but because of black history being so accessible online um in books in podcasts in you know anyone could really go and and be a part of black history month because the books are already out there the podcasts already exist you know which i think for a lot of people especially white people they may have been like waiting for the black person to come on their live or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, you know, that's not exactly what Black History Month is. It's just kind of an acknowledgement of, um, of black history and, yeah. and of how the heck we even got here. And so there's just so many things. Um, and that's the other thing too, is like, there's not enough emphasis in life really, I don't think, but especially on this topic of like, um, intersectionality and like what being in, like the reality that like you said some of these things that we're talking about they're so embedded and intersectional to other issues like this you know predominantly white diet culture that at its face there's nothing even remotely connected to like you know black history there and then you dig a little deeper and you're like oh there's some black history you yeah. know <laughs> um, or like why mutual aid is looked down upon you're like oh well that's not anything oh wait nope there's some black history and I think that it's just like a really good takeaway as we wrap up this episode. I think we have a couple minutes left, but like it's a really good takeaway that like almost anything in your life, um, at yoga, you know, going to the doctor, freaking where you eat, how you eat, like, I mean, all of these things, if you dig a little tiny bit, you're going to find some black history. Yeah. And that's a really like, I don't know. That's just something that my, where my mind goes and how fascinating that is. But people are so on the surface, you know? Yeah. And so they don't want to dig in that way. But I think that that's really what this month should be about. Yeah. And every month. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Black History Month is every month. Black history is American history. Black culture is American and global culture. Let's be real. Um, but I think what's important to me and the way I like to think about it is that for, you know, BIPOC for Black people, Black History Month is sort of the baseline corrective measure that you can put in place for never centering our stories while stealing our capital from us in every form at every turn in history forever and still to this day, right? Um, but for everybody else, it's a really it's a chance to dig and grow your empathy and to understand the profound ways in which your fate because there's this thing in poli sci that um is often attributed to black people that black people have and that's the concept of linked fate and that is this thing that because we were robbed of our cultural differences when um our ancestors were brought here and you know they made a concerted genocidal type campaign to rob us of all of our own independence we sort of became if you're black i'm rooting for you it doesn't matter we don't have that sort of like nationalist thing keeping us apart. We are black people who understand that our fates are intrinsically connected to each other. And mm -hmm. sort of, I think of black history as a chance, black history month as like a requirement, first of all, but a chance for, <laughs> um, a chance for people to sort of understand that they are part of linked fate too, that all of our fates are linked and that 
you know, just like unicorns yes. and rap music, that you need to pick up that part of Black culture and really take that in and understand that breaking down these rules and breaking down this world that is given to you is scary and hard. And it might, you know, force you to face some really hard things and recognize that like maybe the cushy life you live, you didn't fucking earn, but it also will give you the profound gift to help you understand and empathize and care about the people around you, which is only good. It's not a bad thing to understand and sympathize with people. And if these these Christian white lady influencers really listen to the Jesus they claim to love, they would dedicate themselves to learning and living in the love that they claim that they are spreading. And so that's what I would encourage people to use this month for is just learn, get in there, do some work and just like really grow your empathy and you'll feel better and you'll just feel smarter. It'll make life so much easier. You realize how much everything is bullshit and it makes it so much easier to go through and be yourself. (laughs) Okay, yes. I'm so glad you said that. The episode, we I have to cut things off here. Yeah. Um, I, I knew that um, Victoria and I were going to be talking and up until the final hour um, because we love to talk yeah. um, when we get <laughs> the chance. But yeah, I, I, I totally love that you said that because for me, a lot of like this chapter of my deconstruction where I'm entering into like abolition territory, it feels like I'm playing like you know, levels of Pac-Man or Tetris or whatever, no. where I'm like, oh, I've entered a new stage. And I'm in this new stage right now where I really just entered into this, like, fuck it all and fuck it, like, uh, and fuck it up and mentality of, like, this is just not fine and nothing will ever be fine. And, like, and I've entered, I think, too, into this place of, like, harm reduction versus harm, uh, like, I had this really sobering um, um, Zoom call with this individual um, who in, like enlightened me so much. She's very, very like very in the work when it comes to mutual aid and when it comes to just like social work, she's a social worker. Mm-hmm. Anywho, like she kind of sobered me and was like, okay, I just want to make sure that any dreams that you're talking about, that they're harm reduction minded and not like, we're going to just like end it all and fix it all like minded because there's a, totally a big difference. Right. Yeah. And I think that at the end of the day, some of these systems are so, so massive that to go up against them or to say that like, you know, if we implemented this organization or this whatever, that we would be able to completely abolish them. Um, definitely not alone and definitely not overnight. Right. But we can definitely come into this mindset of like harm reduction. Absolutely. And, and so I have definitely been in the same space you are of like, you know, on the one hand, it feels maddening to feel like I have all this information that like the common person might not want to pursue or might not want to delve deep into. But then on the other hand, it feels extremely freeing because you have all this information that someone else doesn't want or that the average person doesn't want. And you feel extremely like enlightened for lack of a better word, you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, now I don't have to give a shit about that because I know it's all just a construct yeah. and I don't have to give a shit about that either. And so it can be definitely very freeing. I think for a lot of people too, like people struggle with receiving that type of like groundbreaking information, right? Like information that totally radically changes the way that they see a certain institution or a certain reason why something is the way that they, that it is, or the certain like a certain part of our culture or subculture. I think it's a lot for people to digest when they realize that it has this, you know, racist background, or when they realize that it has. You know what I mean? Oh, it's just sure. interesting. But I think how people I think that some of the work also though is that you learn to be excited by like realizing how like I mean I I said this like a couple weeks ago when I was talking to a friend's dad and we were talking he was talking about like cancel culture or whatever and I was like but the thing is 
I look forward to looking back on what I say right now and being like, ugh, because it means I learned something. And it means that I am actively figuring out how to make the world better for the people around me. And by default, making myself better, which is like, you know, my selfish goal. And so you, if you sort of learn right. to it, with that kind of like childlike glee, that excitement of being like, can't wait to look back on how stupid I sounded as I learned more, like it gets easier. <laughs> <laughs> I- I love that. I love that. I, that's perfect. And that is so true. And that's how I hope we all approach this month and every month, you know, there might be 10 days left in, or eight, no, nine. Okay. There's the math coming out. There you go. Nine days left in February, but there is, um, you know, these conversations to be explored every single month, every day. And we definitely will be continuing them throughout um, the year here on Nobody's Damsel. But Victoria, it's always more than a pleasure. I could talk to you all the time. I'm, you know, I would have you as my co-host. Thank you you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll be back next Friday uh, with another episode. For now, everybody have a great week and stay healthy. Bye.